Hello, I'm John, and this is In Orbit. Greetings, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the In Orbit podcast. If you're a repeat offender slash regular orbiter, we are so glad you're back. And if you're just finding us for the first time, welcome. You know, I read today that there are between three and four million podcasts out there to choose from, so we're grateful that you're spending time with us today. And at time of recording, we're sitting at 9,850 downloads, so so close to 10,000. Hopefully you'll keep coming back so we can get that next 10,000. We talk a lot on the podcast about the work that KBR's amazing people are doing all over the world, but what you might not know is that many of those amazing people are former service members. KBR has a long history of supporting active duty soldiers, veterans, and their families, and our extensive support of the U.S. and U.K. governments and their allies includes offering former service members new opportunities to continue serving their countries while also forging civilian careers. Our guest today, Scott Hudson, is part of that cohort. Scott is the chief UH-1 pilot, UH-1 being a utility military helicopter, at Cord Technologies, a wholly owned subsidiary of KBR. And he works primarily out of Fort Hood in Texas. Scott's with us today to talk about his impressive career as an aviator from the U.S. Army to fighting fires with the U.S. Forest Service. He's also going to talk to us about the work he does out at Fort Hood and about a remarkable career milestone he recently achieved. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Well, thank you, John. First of all, Thank you for your service, sir. Well, it's been a pleasure. You know, the Army's been very good to me. That's outstanding. Well, before having people on the podcast, I like to do as much internet stalking as possible. Uh, Reading about your experience on LinkedIn, it looks like you were born to fly. How did you first get into aviation? Well, it's kind of funny that you mentioned born because I actually just about was born into aviation. My father purchased his first aircraft when I was two years old. Oh, wow. Most kids grow up with family cars. I grew up with family cars and family airplanes. <laughs> by the time my father was, uh, or by the time I was 13 years old, my father had taken his hobby and he'd converted it into a, a full-time occupation. Uh, he was doing instructing and he was a uh, rough line charter trips and he actually took over as the local airport manager. So as a kid at 13, I had a pretty good advantage. At 13, I logged my first official uh, flight in my logbook and that was 1967. Wow. And uh, of course, uh, what, uh, 56 years ago, I guess. That's tremendous. I had to wait three years before I was old enough to solo because uh, you had to be 16 to solo. And it's kind of ironic because, uh, uh, state of Michigan at 16, you're not allowed to drive a car for, and you got to go 30 days with a supervised adult. So I'm at, on the morning of my 16th birthday, uh, I couldn't drive to the airport. My father had to drive me to the airport. But once I got to the airport, I jumped in three different airplanes and soloed. <laughs> so I could legally fly an airplane by myself, but I couldn't drive a car yet. That is amazing. Is the age for soloing still 16 or has it increased since then? To my knowledge, it's still 16. By the time I was 17, on my 17th birthday, I got my private license. That's incredible. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your flight career post-17 years old before joining uh, CORD and KBR? Well, like I said, at 17, I got my license and I'd also signed up in the Army in uh, high school. It took five months of delayed entry. Uh, I was planning on going right into high school to flight school, but uh, while I was in delayed entry, the Army put a two-year college requirement on, and I'd already made up my mind to come in, so I I scored real high in mechanics, so they sent me in mechanics. I was a UH UH-1 crew chief mechanic, came down on orders for Vietnam in 1971 as a door gunner, but at the last minute, they said, well, we got too many of you guys, so put in for another school, so I got fixed wing maintenance then. Once again, I come down on orders for Vietnam, and at that point... uh, 
They said, well, you know, you can go to Vietnam if you want, uh, but you're the distinguished graduate of your class, so we'd rather you go to the Presidential Flight Detachment. So two hours later, I left Fort Eustis, and I was in uh, Washington, D.C. And then in 1973, I ran into a CW-4 on, on the flight line, and uh, he says, Hudson, he says, uh, I've been looking for a Hudson. He says, did you ever put in for flight school? And I said, yeah, but I forgot about that. He said, he said well, give me your social security number. So I gave it to him. And the next day he calls me up and he says, you're the guy I've been looking for, but they told me you went to Vietnam. And he says, uh, I said, well, who are you anyhow? And he goes, well, I'm the guy that picks guys to go to flight school. So a couple of weeks later, I was on my way to Fort Walters, Texas. And uh, I was, this is the Mineral Wells. And I was the very last class to go through Fort Walters. In 1974, I graduated from Fort Rucker, Alabama. did my second part at Fort Rucker. And uh, they sent me to Germany. I got to Germany. It was kind of unique in Germany because uh, all the pilots in Germany were guys out of Vietnam. They didn't need them in CONUS, so they'd send them to uh, Germany. So I come in as a brand new W-1. They hadn't even seen a W-1 for years there. But the thing was, none of these pilots had an instrument ticket. They all had what they called a TAC instrument ticket. Scott, let me interrupt you for a moment and ask you, uh, what's W-1, just for our listeners? Okay, uh, a W-1 is a warrant officer one. And he's basically equivalent of a second lieutenant. Gotcha. Okay. And at that at that time, we had W-1 through W-4, W-4 being equivalent of a major. So anyhow, uh, I get over there. The There's no there's no instrument-rated pilots. we got 50 officers in the unit and two examiners. So instantly, I made an, I come out of the flight school with a standard instrument rating, and that was unheard of at that time. So instantly, I made into an instructor pilot for teaching instruments, and I'd get the guys qualified, and I'd send them over to the examiners to finish them off. Did that for a couple of years. And then uh, in 1976, I was a young CW2, and I was an air mission commander, and our unit had a classified program. We were hauling nukes around Germany. Oh, wow. And uh, I was an air mission commander in that program, and it was being run by a captain who was an artillery branch commander. And uh, he had a fallout with the commander. The commander relieved him and sent him off to the States and they didn't know who's going to take over the program, and it wasn't a warrant officer slot. It was a captain slot. So the next thing I know as a young CW2, I found myself as a 7th Corps Aviation Surety Officer. It's my job to train pilots to fly nukes around and also air mission commanders. So it was kind of interesting. Two years, I did real good, and it was a good feather in my hat for me. And I did that up until 1978 when the Army sent me off to the UH-1 Instructor Pilots course to be a full-fledged instructor. Uh, and at the same time, they sent me to the Cobra transition right after that. And the reason being is the Cold War is going strong then. Right. And uh, at that time, the Russians were a big threat because they had 21 tank divisions for every one division we had in Germany. So they were looking for attack helicopter pilots because uh, basically a, a helicopter could kill about 20 tanks for a loss of one. Oh, my goodness. So I've, after four years in Germany, I find myself reassigned right back to Germany. And I was in the 2nd Armored Cav Regiment. And it was really one of the most rewarding jobs I think I've ever had, patrolling the East Communist border. And I, I was patrolling East Germany, and I was patrolling Czechoslovakia. And uh, we flew every day of the week, seven days a week, Christmas, holidays, it didn't matter. We had to be out there. And we had a real mission, and I got a lot of flight time doing it. And uh, I think I was on my third Cobra tour back in Germany again, and... Uh, I was flying to 501st in Ansbach, Germany, when we got a brand new division commander come in by the name of Crosby E. Saint, Major General. And this guy, his division was Southern Germany, and he didn't like to stay in the office at all. <laughs> he wanted he, he wanted to visit his troops, and he was looking for a pilot. Well, at that time, attack helicopter pilots had basically been cut down because uh, the money was tight in the Army, and the first thing they cut is the attack helicopters. 
So I was also the UH-1 instructor pilot in the unit. So when he was looking for a pilot, I raised my hand. Uh, he and I connected good, and I actually stayed with him for 10 years. Oh, wow. Uh, he got his third star. He took over Fort Hood, and he took me with him. And uh, I was flying to Fort Hood. Then he got his fourth star, and he went back to Germany. That was 1988. And uh, he was uh, now what they call a sink user, sink being commander-in-chief. And that's when I got my Blackhawk transition. And I flew with him, uh, and when he retired... I had about 22 years in the Army, and I figured, okay, I'll retire too now. And uh, General Maddox took over as his position at that time. And General Maddox come in and says, Scott, uh, I'm bringing my pilot, Dave Tomlin, in, who's a Healy pilot, and I want you to train him to fly Blackhawks. So I stayed on to General Maddox. When General Maddox left, I was going to retire again. And then General Crouch come in and says, Scott, I want to keep you on. Finally, in 1995, I think it was, I told General Crouch, I said, sir, I got to go home. I got a brand new house built. It's in my retirement home. It's been sitting two years empty. <laughs> I'd really like to go back. So it's kind of a mistake on my part because when I went back, now I'm a CW5, and the Army said, you're too valuable to be a Peter pilot. So they make me a staff officer. And I was a brigade safety officer and the 2nd AD Division Sa Aviation Safety Officer. And to my surprise, I was actually quite good at being a, a staff officer. It was the first time in my life I'd done something like that. But I wasn't flying. That was the only problem. Right. So, uh, and uh, a couple of years later, they sent me back to Germany as a COSCOM aviation safety officer. And I did that for a very short time. I was having a good time doing it, but I wasn't flying. And then I get a phone call from Heidelberg. And it says, we got a new sink over here. His name is General Miggs. And he's looking for a pilot, and the guys in Heidelberg still remember you. So, you know, we'd like to we'd like to have you come in for an interview. I said, okay, what do I do? And they said, well, come on in at 4.30 in the afternoon at the VIP lounge in Heidelberg, and you can meet with the general. So I'm thinking that's what I'm doing. I show up at 4.30. I go into operations. I said, I'm here to meet General Miggs. And they said, oh, you're Mr. Hudson. That jet outside is waiting for you. <laughs> you're going to Sarajevo. I said, what? <laughs> I didn't bring in any overnight gear. And they said, well, that's okay. You won't need it. And they said, uh, we'll have you back tonight. <laughs> so I go down to Sarajevo. Well, it turns out he was wearing two hats. He was a sink user. He was also the South Fork commander, which is Stabilization of Forces Command. That was when Bosnia was really getting underway. Right. So I had, he and I hit it off. It turns out when I was a young W-2 flying the border, he was a lieutenant on the border. And uh, so General Miggs and I just hit it off. I took over as his pilot. And uh, I had to maintain two special Sinkhawks in Heidelberg for him in Germany, and I had to maintain two of them in Sarajevo, Bosnia, so when he was flying around down there. I did that, and then um, basically I retired at uh, 30 years out of that job and got to fly for the last couple of years. That's amazing. Like, because of the caliber of your ability, they just they couldn't let you go. They couldn't let you retire. <laughs> well, the general told me he liked to see gray hair in the cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> experience, experience. You need somebody that's around. That's amazing that that at 22 years you were looking at retiring, and then and then eight more years tacked on after that. That's incredible. Um, so, what are some of the highlights? You've mentioned a lot of them in the, in that little uh, synopsis. What are some of the highlights from you know the military or from fighting fires? What are the highlights in your career? Well, I think. Military-wise, I'd have to say it's flying the nukes around, uh, flying on the border. Mm -hmm. and I, also, I also had one good mission. I got sent, uh, when the wall first fell, I got sent clear over to Poprod, Czechoslovakia, which was on the Russian border, to fly Vice President Dan Quayle. Oh, wow. The U.S. ambassador at the time was Shirley Temple. Oh, I recall that, yes. 
So I got to fly her, and I got to tell you, she was just as sweet as she is on TV. And she was <laughs> wonderful. She took pictures with us beside the aircraft and everything. So we had that was that was one of my highlights. That's right. I'd forgotten that she was a she was a U.S. ambassador at that at that time. So tell us a, a bit about your role then at Fort Hood. Well, once I retired, I never thought I'd see a helicopter again. But it turns out uh, a guy by the name of Ren McNeely hired me about eighteen years ago. And I started doing firefighting on Fort Hood. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, so that, that got me into firefighting. And then uh, later on, I went out, I spent about eight years firing, uh, fighting for the Forest Service out in the Northwest, which I'd spend my summers out there doing that. But uh, then when Rem hired me to fly for Cord, basically what happens, he says, okay, you got to start the program. He says, we got a Huey that's sitting in a, a wrecked hangar because the hurricane had taken a hangar out down in Galveston and collapsed on the tail boom of a Huey. We purchased the Huey, we sent it down to Kentucky, and the guys in Kentucky were going to do a full restoration for us to the tune of about $750,000. Uh, my, my job was to fly to Kentucky occasionally, oversee the, the restoration of the helicopter. When the helicopter was restored, Rem McNeely and I, we did the acceptance flight on it. At that time, we took the helicopter, we flew it down to Huntsville so the guys at CORD could get a look at it. We did a static display so they could see some of the other faucets of what CORD Technologies does. And then it was my job, and, and REM flew with me, we flew the helicopter back to Texas. Uh, once I got back to Texas, it was my job was then to, I had to find a hangar, I had to find a maintenance program, I had to get a mechanic trained up on the UH, I mean the helicopters. My goodness. A 1969 Vietnam helicopter, has got bullet holes in it, so it's kind of an old bird to find the parts and everything for it. But anyhow, we got a, a mechanic all trained up on it. And then my job was to get pilots trained, and most of the pilots I trained were Apache pilots who... We're talking going from high technology to low technology, right. but uh, but some most of these guys has always been has always been their dream to fly an Apache and a UH-1 helicopter, you know, Vietnam birds. So the guys are happy and having a ball doing it. And then uh, basically we got two missions here: we do reconnaissance and we do firefighting. So those are our two missions. What do you find most rewarding about your work? I I got to say probably the thing that I I just enjoy the most is nature. I mean. You can't imagine what nature, how beautiful it is until you fly low level in a helicopter. Mm. And and basically our mission is to fly West Texas. Our, our training area is from Fort Hood all the way out to San Angelo. Okay. It's, it's a lot of wilderness out there. And we fly at treetop level because that's where the missions are done. And we're looking for hazards in our recon. And you'll see turkey. You'll see wild hogs. You'll see deer. I mean, I, I can't believe people are paying me to do this, to be honest <laughs> with you. Scott, can you tell us a little about some of the broader work? You've mentioned some of the stuff that you and you and other pilots do at Fort Hood. What's some of the broader work that our that our folks are doing at Fort Hood? Well, we have a turnkey operation here. Basically, we support the Dutch military, and and it's hard for the uh, helicopters to fly in Holland. Holland is such a populated area; they don't even want their police helicopters to fly. Interesting. So what what happens is they come to the United States, and they've been coming to Fort Hood for about twenty years now. And what it is, every six weeks we have a new class. They have Apache helicopters and they have Chinooks. They're brand new helicopters. They're really nice helicopters. Mm -hmm. And they've turned those helicopters over to Cord. And what Cord does is we maintain them. We provide the mechanics. We provide the test pilots, the instructor pilots. And every six weeks a new class comes in. They can just jump in their aircraft and go out and fly. 
If they need instructors, we can provide them. And we probably have about 159 people here at West Fort Hood, and they're all mostly ex-military, the highest caliber people. There's some true professionals out there. That's outstanding. Well, you recently achieved a significant career milestone, and I want to give listeners a little perspective first. I've read that a budding commercial pilot has to log 250 hours of flight time that an entry-level airline pilot has to log between 1,000 and 1,500 hours. You recently hit the 11,000 flight hours mark. Can you tell us about that? Like, put that in perspective for us. Well, for an airline pilot, that wouldn't be that much. But for a helicopter pilot, it's a lot. Basically, we say as helicopters that one-hour helicopter is probably equivalent of uh, five hours, four or five hours of fixed-wing flying. Wow, okay. And that's, that's mainly because if an airplane has maybe five hours of fuel, a helicopter has two hours of fuel. They'll go out on a cross-country flight, they put the autopilot on, and four or five hours later they're landing. We'll go out and we'll work for an hour, 1.8 hours, and it's time to go home with our fuel reserve. And I can tell you, I also flew as a contract pilot in, in uh, Afghanistan for a couple of years. That's flying King Air 300, so it's not all helicopter wow. time. I do have a couple thousand hours of fixed-wing time. That's amazing. But I could... I can tell you that doing two hours of firefighting single pilot wears me out a lot more than doing five hours at 20,000 foot in the King Air 300. <laughs> and that's just because flying flying a helicopter, is, it's more hands-on, I take it. Yeah, it's all, it's all seat, seat of the pants. That's amazing. About how many hours do you log in a month? Well, we're contracted for 170 hours a year here at Fort Hood. So that and uh, I have my own private airplane that I probably put 50 hours on, so... I probably accumulate about 18 hours a month. However, that's not a lot of hours, 18 hours, but when you take a, I'm, I'm basically semi-retired. Right. So for me, it's the, per, it's the perfect amount because you start working more than that, it becomes work. <laughs> and as it is now, it's just pure fun. Was this something that, um, you know, someone on the base keeps track? I mean, obviously you have to record your hours, but was this something that you were cognizant of as the milestone was coming up? Yeah, I've got, uh, every flight I've ever done from day one, I have a logbook and I make an entry. Even when I was in the Army and the Army takes care of your flight time, I still kept my own private logbook. I'm now on logbook number eight. <laughs> you know, every, every time you have to total up your pages, you know where you're at. So I could, you know, I, I almost wish I hadn't told anybody I was coming up on 11,000 because everyone's making such a big deal out of it. Oh, it's a big deal. Uh, what's another milestone you hope to achieve in your semi-retirement? Well, I'm coming up on 70 years of age right now. For me, most of the milestones I ever wanted to accomplish, I've done. Um, probably at this point in my age, uh, is the milestone is just passing those class two flight physicals. I mean, uh, you know, when I was 20 years old, they were pretty easy, but at 70, I got to work at it. <laughs> and basically, my milestone is keep passing those physicals so I can keep doing what I love doing. That's awesome. I commend you for that attitude. That's that's wonderful. I wish that uh, wish that everyone could love their job as much as, as you seem to. Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners? Well, like I said, I'm coming up on 70 years of age, and uh, I'm still flying helicopters. I'm flying airplanes. I'm riding motorcycles. And for the last seven years, I've been doing that with an artificial leg. Oh, my goodness. But, uh, but that's another story I don't want to get into right now. But <laughs> <laughs> I had, and, and I would like to mention my co-pilot. I have a really good co-pilot. He's uh, like me. He's a retired military officer. He's a retired master aviator, CW4. Uh, like me, he started out in Hueys, and then he went to Cobras like me. Uh, he did go on to fly Citation jets and Gulfstream jets for the Army. 
But uh, like me, his name is also Hudson. Oh, wow. And that's because he's he's my brother. <laughs> and, uh, and we flew together in the Army. We flew together as contract pilots in Afghanistan. And now we're flying together for CORD in KBR. Scott, that is amazing. What an amazing story. A family element. Surprise. Sneak attack right at the end. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate your taking time out of your schedule to speak with us today. And uh, this has been a real treat. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Oh, I sure have, John. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode. A big thank you to Scott Hudson for taking time to be with us on the podcast to talk about the incredible work he has done in his career and that the broader KBR core team is doing at Fort Hood. As always, a big shout out to Emma, our producer, for her amazing work as well. If you're a former service member and are interested in exploring possible careers at KBR, please check out the careers page on our website, kbr.com. There's a special page that talks about the work we do supporting veterans, so definitely do not miss that. You can also look up opportunities on LinkedIn and other career websites. If you liked what you heard today or have an idea for an episode, please let us hear from you at inorbit at kbr.com. Just shoot us an email. We've also got two seasons of content in our back catalog that you can check out if you like what you're hearing. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends or professional network about us by sharing the episode on social media. Finally, thank you again to all of you who are listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more good stories. But in the meantime, stay safe, take care of the planet, eat your vegetables. Take care. Take care.